You're listening to Discography Discussion, episode 119, Between the Buried and Me. Hosted by Dan Terry. Even I was like, you know, I'm great. How are you? And Joe Wren. This is everything you like, all at once. Presented by DiscussMetal.com. And if you think the only thing between the buried and me is five feet of dirt, then you are ready for this episode of Discography Discussion. I am Joe. That is Dan. That's really what they're trying to say, right? Well, I mean, there's dirt, yes. But there's also a little bit of wood fragments. At least for me, I could assume that by the time I die, I'm going to leave everybody behind destitute. So they're only going to be able to afford a wooden coffin. We're talking like 1800 style with like some dude on a peg leg that walks around with a lantern that digs all the graves. Don't act surprised. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. If you want to get technical, the band name was actually based on a Counting Crows song, song Ghost Train, where the lines between the buried and me are repeated. Not going to get into it because I'm not a massive Counting Crows fan, but I will tell you it's a badass lyric to just pull out and name your band after. We'll definitely bring it up later when we mention the anatomy of... But between the buried and me, I don't know if they started off as a progressive death metal band. I don't know if they began their career wanting to make adult contemporary death metal. But what they became later on is one of the best progressive death metal bands I've ever heard. And then it got a little mediocre, but mediocre by Between the Buried and Me's standards. I agree 100%. And I think that this band is... One of the best examples of humble beginnings and then getting so hyped up on your own hype that you start putting stuff out that you don't really put a lot of thought into. Like, they put a lot of thought into it. They're great musicians, and we'll get into this. However, they're more of like a a band that started feeling like they had an image that they had to live up to on every album. So they started trying to outdo themselves. Before we set off to Alaska on this one, I want to take this time to say thank you to everyone for listening to the podcast. Thank you for listening and for subscribing. If you are not a subscriber, then you can find everything Discography Discussion at DiscussMetal.com. We're on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher. So if you have an Amazon Echo or a Google Home, you have no excuse. Ask it to play the latest episode of the Discography Discussion podcast, and it will. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter at Discuss Metal. Be sure to like, favorite, and subscribe. It really helps us out. It lets us know you're listening. And now Dan is going to tell us all about five-star reviews. We love five-star reviews here on Discography Discussion, and we love them because we're greedy assholes and want more of them. The reason we want more of them is because, as I've discussed on almost every episode, there are search algorithms that base all of their results on whether or not a podcast is highly rated. If you're a highly rated podcast, you get recommended to people that want to hear your podcast. So if you're listening to a metal podcast and it's similar to ours, we want that algorithm to recommend our podcast. If you're looking for a podcast that you can binge, that is absolutely us. With over 100 episodes, you can you can go in there and binge away, or you can cherry pick whatever bands that you like that you want to hear us talk about. Totally cool. We're glad to have all of you guys. But yeah, if you're using any kind of streaming app or Spotify or Apple Podcasts or whatever, you can leave us a review on all those platforms. So please do so. It's the best thing that you can do to help us out. I'd also like to take this time to shout out our patrons, Alexander, Jeffrey De Los Santos. The actual Mac. Kiki QT, do you love me? I do love you. Luis, Luis Fernando, Fernando Paisano, Paisano Escalante, Escalante, Lance Allgood, and Zach Barr. I want to give Lance Allgood 
a little bit of credit here because Lance sends us messages all the time helping us come up with ideas to make our Patreon subscribers happier. And we really appreciate all of your ideas, Lance. He gives us band recommendations. Lance kind of checks the boxes for everything that we're looking for. We want you guys to recommend bands to us, whether you're a patron or not. We want all that stuff, all the feedback. That's my favorite thing about interacting with you guys. And at the end of the show, I will go through a laundry list of ways you can interact with us if that's what you want to do. I'd also like to let everyone else know if you are not a patron, you can become one for $1. You get access to an exclusive album review feed in July of this year. Keeping with one of the requests that has come from Patreon, we will begin releasing episodes on Friday before Monday, I know what I said, to patrons at the $3 tier or higher. So if you're a $1 subscriber, you're still going to have those exclusive album reviews. That's not going to change. The main show will always be available. It will always be free. But if you subscribe for $3 or more, you're going to start getting the show two days before everyone else. And Dan is looking at me like, really, dude, is that what we're going to do? Yes, that is what we are going to do. That means I have to work harder, but since you guys are paying me, I will work hard for you. So, Dan, tell me about Between the Buried and Me. Between the Buried and Me started in 2000. They are from North Carolina, which is cool because that's also where I was born. I'm starting to notice a resemblance in attitude. Let's just, you know, check all the boxes. Yeah, especially like later on in my career when I got really full of myself and tried living up to my own expectations. Don't even get me started on the vegetarian years of Dan Terry. Hey, you know what? The years that I was a vegetarian, I greatly expanded my palate. Now I drink every type of beer. So there was this band called Prayer for Cleansing that was just like a metalcore band. And they broke up and they formed a new band called Between the Buried and Me. That's really all I know about the early days of Between the Buried and Me, because this is a band that I was not associated with or a band that I knew anything about. I'm not associated with the band. There was that one time we went to Nashville and they recorded a live record. We'll mention that later. I was just watching that last night, the Colors Live DVD. Between the Buried and Me had a very unique sound. Now, I didn't really hear them until their second album, which was called The Silent Circus. They had a single out called Mordecai, and they had a music video. And I remember watching the music video, and it was like, just this like heavy like death grind almost sounding band with a little bit of metalcore in it and i remember in the video the entire thing is done like with barbie dolls in stop motion and i think it's a murder i'm not entirely sure a ken doll picks up a barbie doll they go out for like drinks and shit and then like at some point the ken doll's like disposing of the barbie doll's body it's a it's a crazy crazy looking video and it definitely caught my attention. But the thing that caught my attention the most was that about three-fourths through the song, all the heaviness just cuts. It just goes into this weird blue oyster cult sort of thing. And all of a sudden, like, their singer is singing clean, and he sounds beautiful. And then they end with, like, an orgasmic guitar solo. And I'm like, okay, where do I sign up? Went to my local Best Buy. I signed up. I was not disappointed. I myself made a similar trip. What, about two weeks later after I wouldn't shut the fuck up about it? Well, I think it was a little bit after that. The first record I heard, and this is most definitely your fault as well, was Alaska, The Silent Circus, and because you had the special edition, the DVD that came with The Silent Circus, where they played some of the Alaska songs in a live setting with terrible sound quality, I wasn't entirely on board, but I was interested that a band who was that technical and that sound and very much did not appear to make mistakes. 
we're doing the, we play this riff, we stop, we play this riff, we stop, but they were doing it with a much broader sense of musicality than other bands of that style. If you hear the wrong Between the Buried and Me song, you're going to think they're a metalcore band. They are not. They're very much adult contemporary death metal because they play whatever the fuck they want to. I actually think you could summarize the band as Dream Theater with even more attention to detail and a wider palette of colors. So Bob Ross and Mike Portnoy, go. Bob Ross and Mike Portnoy. Happy little trees. And I get the Bob Ross, but the Mike Portnoy, I just, I don't see those personalities working out very well together. Well, one man tries to spread the joy of painting by letting everyone know that you can create beautiful art with just this very limited palette. And the other one has a giant drum set with multiple pieces that he does not play live or in the studio, but you gotta mic it up because it's Mike Portnoy. Let's break this down, shall we? Album number one, Between the Buried and Me by Between the Buried and Me. This has a lot of the DNA of the band in it. It's a good backbone. The album starts off with a song called More of Myself to Kill. What's immediately striking about it is the vocals are not good, like even a little bit. Have you ever tried to do death metal vocals in your basement? I still do it. I'm in my 30s, so take that how you will. This is weird because I almost feel like he should have spent three or four more weeks developing his death metal vocals. And I'm not sure how he screamed before or if he screamed before. And I think it's the latter because he just doesn't sound good. His deep guttural vocals where he's trying to sound like Cannibal Corpse, they're just not hitting. You, you can hear his voice breaking and cracking up and it's not in a good, like brutal sort of way. It's like, like a, oh my God, he really can't pull this off, can he? To his credit though, he keeps going. He does the whole record. Another anomaly about the self-titled album is that the guitarist Paul Wagner does all of the clean vocals. Tommy Rogers is doing just the extreme vocals and playing the keys. That could be, but I can hear Tommy in the background. Like he, It's almost like Paul does the lead vocal on the singing parts, and then you've got Tommy kind of in the background doing the more... Uh, ethereal type vocals and i have no idea who does the 80s hair metal part on aspirations you know i really wish i'd have brought that cd with me to the recording because they actually do explain it in the liner notes but the thing about more of myself to kill and why it's such a such a strong song yeah the vocals aren't good but for whatever reason it's got this kind of appeal to it where like it sounds super raw it's got a lot of that old school metalcore sound to it like joe was talking about like play this riff, stop, play this other riff, stop, play this other riff, stop. Except with Between the Buried and Me, they're like, okay, now we're going to throw in like a rock part. Now we're going to get, now we're going to slow it down considerably and go in like a more of an emotional direction. It's weird hearing clean vocals on a record that sounds like this, but it works. And they actually go into it. They speed it up at the end of that song and go into an amazing sequence. That's like super melodic. And for some reason, Tommy's bad guttural vocals sound really cool over it for some reason and that could just be purchase justification i think i paid like 15.99 for this album so i was determined to like it because i had i already liked alaska and the silent circus so i was like well whatever this is it, it is what it is overall i enjoy the album it appeals to me the most because i like the songs aspirations chevanel cut a flip use of a weapon fire in a dry mouth naked by the computer dude I don't care that the vocals don't sound as good as they would sound, but I think one of the main appeals of this album is, and I'm going to get this out of the way now, 
every album released by Between the Bear to Me is recorded or produced by Jamie King, primarily in his basement studio. And I aspire to be like him. And you will hear a definitive progression in his ability, the quality, and the equipment, because it's uphill from here, with one exception that he had nothing to do with, that I don't give a shit that the band calls it an EP. It's a record. It's over 30 minutes long. We will get to that. There's a little bit of weirdness associated with every release in this band. I agree mostly with you, Joe, on the track listings. I enjoy More of Myself to Kill is probably my favorite song on the album. It's just a really good opener and kind of explains everything that Between the Buried and Me is about and will continue to be about throughout the rest of their career. 2003, The Silent Circus. The Silent Circus is in a lot of ways a much better debut for the band than their debut. This is the Between the Buried and Me that most people know. Even though the members of the band are not yet signed on for the long haul. Solidified. I agree. They had kind of a revolving cast. So the people that you're going to follow throughout their career is going to be Tommy Rogers and Paul Wagner up until Alaska, where they solidify the perfect lineup. Now, the Silent Circus is a great debut. It's not, but it is. This is them signed to a label. So this is their label debut. The vocals that I complained about all through Between the Buried and Me, they're all fixed. They're better. I'm not going to say they're fixed yet. We got one more album for that. Well, that's true, but he sounds a hell of a lot better. He sounds like he knows what he's doing on the Silent Circus. He's got some devastating deeper vocals. There's still kind of this element of death grind to the music, which I enjoy. But there's a little bit of chaotic metal, like metalcore in there, too. Like there's some Dillinger Escape Plan-ish parts in there. Although this band isn't anywhere nearly as terrifying as the Dillinger Escape Plan. I will tell you that you're not going to expect everything that you hear on this record. I think the the opening song, uh, Lost Perfection, and I'm not going to pronounce the word that comes after that because fuck this band. Yeah, get ready for weird <laughs> get ready for weird track titles. Cholerophobia. Okay, there you go. Okay, pronounce the second one then. Anablophobia. All right, well, there you go. You, you, you got your PhD. I want to thank the Academy and lead <laughs> singers named Dan. I'd like to thank everyone else who lost. <laughs> I want to thank Jesus and Elvis. Dude. I want to thank Camilla Rhodes. She exists. Oh, Camilla Rhodes. So this album starts off terrifyingly. Like, it just kind of leads in a little bit of an uncomfortable atmospheric part. And then the band just kicks in full force. Death vocals, screams, insane drumming, just weird time signatures. And then it goes into what I think is like the tropiest between the Buried and Me guitar lead ever, which is just that do-do-do-do-do. It's not, it's not exactly... I don't know. But anyway, you, you'll know what I'm talking about. If we you listen call to it the Paul Wagner. Yes, it's it's just it's doodly as fuck and it's so melodic and it makes you feel good in your nether regions. I think this album is probably the heaviest between the Buried and Me album. I kind of go back and forth. Sometimes I think Alaska is heavier, but the Silent Circus is definitely an album that just kind of goes for your throat, but they kind of release you a few times. But I don't remember this album getting super melodic until we get to Mordecai, which is like four songs in. And even then, it doesn't really get melodic until the end. You mentioned the end of Mordecai. Then we skip over a track. We get to Chevenoke Take Two, which is just an acoustic rehash of the ending of the first album. But then Add a Diggleman. 
Yeah. A lot of what the listener is going to hear on this episode is the more chaotic between the Barry to me until they start to overwhelm us with melodic parts. Well, the weird thing is, is they're kind of a band at war with themselves on this album. And that war intensifies on Alaska because they can't decide whether or not they want to be super brutal or if they want to be a melodic band. Because the first thing you notice on Mordecai is, holy shit, this guy can sing really well. I don't know why he doesn't do more of it. And he really doesn't. There really aren't a lot of melodic vocals on the Silent Circus, which the meathead in me appreciates. But it's kind of one of those catch-22s where you're like, man, I really want to hear him sing. But on the other hand, it's like I also just want to throw down in the pit. It's like when you hear somebody that sings that well, you can't help but want more of that. And that's the feeling I come away with on this record is that it is it is fantastic and a great preview of things to come. And, and as the first album I ever heard by the band, it holds a special place in my heart as being very foundational, especially for me, because I listened to metalcore a lot during that time period. The band took a lot of elements from bands that I liked, like the Dillinger Escape Plan, Botch, Zeo, Cannibal Corpse. It threw it all together in a blender, and you just get a record that is completely heavy, but completely technical and progressive at the same time. However, it isn't perfect because this one kind of starts to drag for me about eight or nine tracks in, just because the heaviness is so relentless at times that it starts to get boring. This will show up later in the discography, but Between the Buried and Me has a bad tendency to set the bar high and then fall off at the end the further you go into the discography. Silent Circus is pretty solid until the very end, and I'm not even talking about the hidden track, but you eventually get to a point where you get six minutes of the need for repetition. Is there a need? For them, there is. Every guitarist will argue that there is at some point the need for repetition. And that may be the joke, or at least the creative decision. I want to believe that Between the Buried and Me is deeper than I am able to observe. Over the years, they've released a lot of studio albums. They've played multiple albums live in their entirety and released them. Remember what I said about thinking they're Dream Theater. But I never have seen Tommy Rogers sit down and talk about the lyrics. You get these little tidbits here and there about the story while he's recording with Jamie King. But I've never seen Between the Buried and Me just put something out and say, so let me explain to you Alaska. Let me explain to you Colors. Let me explain Coma Ecleptic. And I think if that existed, some of these less than perfect choices to the listener would make sense and would become justified. Well, I'm going to correct you a little bit because it does exist at least partially. Really? So on my copies of Between the Buried and Me, The Silent Circus, and Alaska, in the liner notes, he explains what all the songs are about. Especially on the first album, there was a song on there that seemed to be very like anti-religion or whatever. And he just put down, he's like, no, this song was about a religious person that I hated and isn't about like religion in general. And he talked about like on the silent circus, how add a Mughalit is just a gibberish song. Add a Diggleman. Add a Diggleman, whatever. It's a digital, uh, digital. It's a, uh, <laughs> it is certainly a digital song, but it's basically a nonsense song where all the lyrics are because at the end of it, he, breaks away and he's like it all makes sense we're capable of beauty and it's about how people just hear heavy music and they don't hear the words they don't hear what's behind the songs so he made all the lyrics intentionally gibberish up until that point 
And uh, if, if I'm not wrong, I think they've like, because they say at one point only the dogs can hear us now. And as far as I know, they like play a dog whistle on the track. I can't hear it because I'm a human being, but I've, I've definitely listened to that around animals and they're not pleased with what they hear. Well, until the dog whistle happens, it's like they wrote the perfect song for Jeff. Right. It's all nonsense. You're not listening anyway. Well, to the lyrics. Alaska, he even goes into the song Alaska basically being about how he couldn't write songs. He couldn't write lyrics to the song Alaska. It's a song written about writer's block. 2005. This is what I thought the definitive between the Barry to Me sound was. Even after Colors, I was waiting for another Alaska. It had the melodic, almost Celtic feel to the songs, but the overall presentation is very solid. Some of these creative choices are not as difficult to understand. Maybe Alaska just makes more sense to me. To me, this is where it all starts to get going with the band. This album is the band that put out the first two albums perfected. They finally nailed that sound. They finally figured out what they were going for on those first two releases. And they slowly weave more and more progressive elements into their music. But it happens in kind of a natural way. So, like, you still get fucking bangers like the song Alaska, All Bodies, Crokies and Boat Shoes. You know, fucking Robo Turner, which that song still gives me fucking nightmares. And then you get songs like Selkie's The Endless Obsession, which is just a motherfucker of a progressive metal song. It's not even that it's that original, because I've heard other proggy bands play very similar riffs and intros, but the way they put it all together with the clean vocals, it starts off with a, with a clean guitar and goes into, you know, harmonized, harmonized lines that are just following each other. That would be Paul and Dusty just kind of harmonizing. They do that extremely well, and they did it better than they did. Well, Dusty wasn't on the silent circus, but... So way better is what you're saying. Super, super <laughs> better. Super better. That's trademarked. Dude. You got to pay me when you say super better. And you mentioned it earlier, so let's get back to it. This is the lineup going forward. Blake Richardson, ladies and gentlemen, he might be the best drummer in the world that's not Chad Kent. Yeah, I would agree with that statement. The dude tries harder than, like, everybody. This motherfucker shows up to the studio by himself. All he's got is a click track mapped out. He gives it to Jamie King, and then he plays the album. Basically, yeah. Anybody else want to sign up for that schedule? Listen to this album. Could you just sit down and play this album, Joe? If I had written it, yes, I could. Oh, my but God. to show up to the studio with nothing but your brain and a click track... That is attention to detail that every drummer should pay attention to. It doesn't sound like Blake's playing by himself. It sounds like he knows exactly what he's supposed to be doing at each point in the song. His dynamics go up, they go down, because Between the Bear to Me is a very dynamic band. They're super dynamic. That's pretty much their whole deal, especially on these three albums. And I think what sets them aside, or I'm sorry, I think that's what sets them apart is that they're super dynamic, but they're really good at the swings. You know, you hear a lot of bands where they'll go into several different styles, but you can tell that like maybe they're really only good at playing Death Grind and all the other stuff is kind of a stretch for them. There's no stretch with Between the Buried and Me, especially not on Alaska. Every song is sequenced well, like the whole album sequenced well, so every song goes exactly where it goes. I would not re I would not resequence this album at all. It's the perfect blend of aggressiveness and melodic sensibility. 
clean vocals. There's a lot of clean vocals on this album, and I love it. Like on Backwards Marathon, this shit gets almost ethereal sounding. It's a song that actually makes you feel good, and it started as like a blast beat heavy song. Like there aren't a lot of bands that can pull that off. Like maybe the Contortionist can, but even they couldn't immediately. This band is getting better and better at tying their dynamics together. You know, like we complained, we complained on Between the Barrier to Me. They play this and then stop, and then they play this and they stop. The Silent Circus is largely the same way, but the music's more compelling. Alaska, they figured out how to transition into those changes, and it all makes sense, which is going to be mission fucking critical for their next release. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but they did release a cover album in 2006, which, if I'm remembering the linear notes correctly, just consisted of songs by bands that influenced them. That's correct. So if you like cover songs, go listen to The Anatomy Of. You get a little bit of what you're expecting at this point by Between the Barry to Me. You also get the band Between the Barry to Me playing those songs. Yeah, so like in their entirety. If you ever wanted to hear Between the Barry to Me play Cemetery Gates, here you go. Dude, fucking bicycle race. They even covered Blackened by Metallica, but I, I prefer the Metallica version. <laughs> I don't think death vocals sound good on old Metallica songs, I'm just saying. So here we go, Elephant in the Room. 2007, Colors. What an album. The best album. Absolutely. There's no fucking around about it. Everyone knows the best album for me is The Crash of 47. In that top five albums of my life, Colors is constantly defending slot two, slot three, because it's almost perfect. Am I correct that this album was written by the band musically in its entirety, and then Tommy Rogers came in and added vocals to it? As far as I know, that's correct. I'll tell you what, as a vocalist, I couldn't even imagine, like, hey, we wrote the new record, here it is, sing on it. This album goes so many different places, it's ridiculous, like, it's straight up ridiculous. Yet somehow, this vocalist is able to still sound how he sounded on Alaska, yet still be able to go in all the weird musical places that this band goes. And it works, a thousand percent. The first time I listened to it, I was told all the songs run together. It's a progressive composition. You have to listen to the whole thing. Most of the time when that's what you're told, you set a bad precedence and the band has a tendency to be up their own ass. We're not there yet. This was the band that recorded Alaska who could write long compositions that made sense. Even with the eclectic, strange choices that Between the Barry to Me makes sometimes, but it works. You get to answer the sky. It goes everywhere from the blast beat style, melodic guitar playing, intense riffing, Tommy Rogers growling and screaming. And at the very end of it, we just bust into bluegrass because we're Between the Barry to Me and we can. It makes no sense, and that's why it makes sense for this band. Yeah, it sounds like you're at a fucking, uh, like, country, I don't even know, like a potluck or something? Like a Louisiana dive bar? No, not like that exactly, but (laughs) no, I just, I get visions of, like, a bunch of dudes in overalls, like, handing pies to each other and shit, and they've got, like, a bluegrass band on stage. I don't know, like, I don't even know how to to quantify some of this stuff. Uh, Son of Nothing is a fucking banger that has a really awesome progressive rock section in the middle of it. And somehow that works. I don't really understand how it works, but it works. 
and I love it. I also love how every single song on this album transitions into the next one. So you can listen, you can skip around and listen to your favorite songs, but personally, I just like going from beginning to end on this record because it all just plays like one big musical composition. This album is also unique to me in that the first two tracks, totaling over seven minutes, Foamborn, part one and part two, succeed where other bands have failed. They are the prologue to the book you're about to read. I'm a terrible reader. If I see a prologue that's like 20 pages, I'm not interested in that. I want to read the book. You cannot start with informal gluttony and get the full colors experience. But if you were to start with informal gluttony, you're not gonna be disappointed with what you hear for the next six songs. But this is one time where you really should read the prologue because it all ties together it's all smooth. If you wanted to know what the best song on the album is, all of them, Colors. But it's White Walls. Also, Viridian is just a badass bass solo. It's incredible. It's a, it's a crowning achievement. They could have just fucking stopped after this, and it would have been fine. As far as I'm aware, this is the album that got them on tour with Dream Theater for Progressive Nation. Yeah, we saw them and uh, Dream Theater and Opeth. And Three. Oh, yeah, and Three, yep. I barely remember three, but yeah, I remember BT Bam only played like, what, two songs because their songs were all 15 minutes long. Incorrect. They nearly played Colors in its entirety. Did they? I don't I don't know about that. Absolutely, they did. I feel like they played Son of Nothing, Ants of the Sky, and maybe White Walls. They also played Informal Gluttony. I'll give them that. You could probably fit that into a 40-minute set. Colors was so good that we talked about this band needs to play this live, and then they did. We went. We saw... We enjoyed, we went and bought the CD. We left halfway through Dream Theater. And then we asked ourselves, what are they gonna do next? I stand by my original statement. An album this good, the worst thing you can do from all angles, business, creativity, and I'm not the band, so I have no say, but as a listener, the one thing I didn't want was Colors Again, because I don't think you could do Colors Again immediately after Colors. There's a story that Hootie and the Blowfish gave up too early on that first album they put out because they were tired of playing it and it killed their career. Colors was hot. Colors was a big deal. Mainstream artists and music fans were paying attention to Colors in many capacities, if only because Mike Portnoy named it his album of the year. So in 2009, we start seeing that Between the Barrier to Me is writing a new album and it's called The Great Misdirect. And Dan and Joe were making fun of it because, oh look, it's six songs. They managed to take colors and reduce it down to even fewer tracks, longer songs, and we were not entirely disappointed with what we got. It wasn't colors again, but it was between the buried and me, continuing with the long composition style of record making. It kind of made me mad that the songs were as long as they were on this album and even on colors to a certain extent because where I was working at the time, it was like nine minutes away from my house. So like I couldn't even get one song in on the way to work, which is really frustrating. It's like I might be able to get, uh, what was it, Obstufication? You got it. All right, cool. I might be able to get that song in, uh, Disease, Injury, Madness, No Way. I definitely wasn't getting Fossil Genera in and fucking swim to the moon's out of the fucking question. Let's talk about swim to the moon for a second. You're going to jump right to that? We're not going to talk about the happy happy moments? For me personally, Between the Barry to Me should have done the opposite of make the great misdirect. After Colors, we should have got another Alaska immediately. Call give, it like Connecticut. 
give me another <laughs> album of three to five minute, you know, six, seven minute songs that I can consume individually and remind myself how good of a band this is, but not have to buy into the progressive death metal thing. I've already got colors. The standard is so high for me at this point that if you give me the wrong thing and expect me to take it in, I'm probably not going to get it. Speaking for myself and the general progressive metal fan. I think it's really hard for any band whenever you put out a perfect album like that. And don't immediately turn around and go the other way. Really, everything that you do is going to be scrutinized from that point. So they could have put out Alaska Part 2. And why probably if this, you know, if in an alternate universe where they did do Alaska Part 2 instead, we'd be up here being like, well, you know, I mean, they, they, they achieved such a great status on colors. Now it just sounds like they just shit out 10 more songs that sound like Alaska and just went with that. I don't think we would have been doing that. I don't know. It's possible, though. We would have been praising them for having the guts to put out something like Colors, and then the great misdirect could have came later, and that might have been praised for being another Colors. Well... Because it was almost a joke to call it the great misdirect. Are we going to do Colors again? Well, not exactly. And this is where the band started to be up their own ass. Everything on this album is good. Not great. Good. And then Dan heard Swim to the Moon. Well, before I get to Swim to the Moon, there's a couple of things I'm going to say. This album was very successful in keeping the band at the level that they had established on Colors. You got that progressive metal band that you heard on Colors and to a lesser extent on Alaska. You know, you, you had all the pieces in place. However, this record doesn't really live up to Alaska. I used to even, I'm sorry, not Alaska. It doesn't even live up to Colors. And I used to joke that it sounded like the album that should have come out before Colors. Like, it, it almost makes more sense in the discography to put The Great Misdirect after Alaska and then it lead into Colors because it's one of those, like, a perfection thing. Like, this was us trying it and then this is us nailing it. And I think The Great Misdirect largely succeeds, but there's a few things about it that Colors has over it. The first thing is that Colors sounds like one musical composition from beginning to end. The Great Misdirect does not. It goes in several different directions. A song like Fossil Genera is very surprising. A song like, you know, because it starts off with that weird keyboard piano, like old ragtime sort of deal, and he's doing his like weird pirate vocals and stuff on it. It's really cool, but it's just kind of out of nowhere. And then you've got uh, songs like Disease, Injury, and Madness, which sounds like a stock Between the Buried and Me song, but it's 11 minutes. So what they used to be able to achieve in five minutes, now they've just doubled it and made it 11 minutes. And I'm not sure why. Yeah, I don't understand why either, to be honest. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense because if you are the higher caliber of musician that can make everything work, like I would have faked it. I would have just like intentionally added transitions between the songs. But maybe they, maybe this was their way of trying to separate the record from colors. I'm not entirely sure. But let's talk about Swim to the Fucking Moon. You remember White Walls from Colors? Dude, I love White Walls. Great fucking closing song. It builds up from that complete drop of Viridian where we took all of the hype that we had built up to that point and dropped it intentionally to build tension. And then we get this long, drawn-out building thing that summarizes the whole piece. Swim to the Moon was the very first time that I ever heard Between the Barrier and me go, man, we need to do that again, only better. But it's not better because... It's just a bunch of random shit thrown into a song. Like, there is a good song hiding in Swim to the Moon. It's got a good quote-unquote chorus. It starts off aggressive. It goes in all the places you'd expect Between the Barry and Me to go. 
but it's very obvious that they are trying to capture a past success with it. They are trying to evoke the same feeling in Swim to the Moon that they evoked on White Walls. And it's so blatantly obvious that they're doing that, that it diminishes my appreciation for it. And with it being a 17 minute song, and don't get me wrong, I love shit like Opeth and Swallow the Sun and stuff, but like those bands are all about letting the music breathe. There's no breathing in Swim to the Moon. Swim to the Moon is let's chalk as much shit into 17 minutes as we can. It almost like functions as an EP all to itself, where it was like, it's like a fruitcake. Like all the leftover ideas are just thrown together. And that's what you get. You get Swim to the Moon. Like I said, there's a good song in there, but it's so long and so drawn out that I lose any sense of cohesion and enjoyment out of it. That was like the very first big misstep that I got from the band. Did it ruin the album for you overall, though? No. I mean, typically I'll listen to this album all the way through Desert of Song. And a lot of the times I'll listen to the first, you know, eight minutes of Swim to the Moon. But then I'm done. Like, there's a certain, like, ADD in my brain that's like, okay, this album's over. And I just turn it off. I don't have time for all this weird dream theater shit that they're doing. You remember the band Common Yet Forbidden? Yeah, dude. That's a deep cut. They stand out to me as a band that had a pretty solid, I'm going to call it thrash album, even though you're going to correct me. And then they have a song at the very end that was just called Riff List, because these were all the riffs we had that didn't become anything. I don't want to say that Swim to the Moon feels like an incomplete composition, but it definitely feels like the first time they really threw shit at the wall, and then when it didn't look the way they wanted it to, they just threw more shit at the wall. Totally agree. But at least, yeah, like they were, they they had such a great level of songwriting up to this point. And I think that they still do. And I don't know if it was, was just like, well, we're going to just put one over on the fans. Maybe they think that Swim to the Moon's the greatest fucking thing they've ever recorded. They certainly play it like they think that. But this is also what I was talking about, how, about how you set up your own hype and then you buy into that hype. And maybe, maybe you're not able to see the things that you would have seen whenever you weren't on that level. And even though it's an EP, we got to talk about Parallax hypersleep dialogues because it's 30 minutes long. I'm not exactly sure why this album exists the way that it does. This is the only thing recorded by Between the Barry to Me, as far as I am aware, that was not recorded by Jamie King. They do some things later on in Coma Ecleptic and Automata where they actually went to a studio for a reason. Spoilers, Grand Piano. But for the most part, everything's done by Jamie King in his basement. This was not. As far as I'm aware, this was not even produced by Jamie King. So I'm not exactly sure what the purpose of the Parallax Hypersleep Dialogues is, but I do not enjoy it. It's a very long, even though it's a three-song album or EP or whatever, it's super long. The songs are actually less like Colors and less like The Great Misdirect. It sounds more like the Alaska era band playing the silent circus material. I mean, it's okay. Like, I mean, it's got everything in it that between the buried and me does, but it sounds different. Like sonically, it just doesn't really hit the same way. And it just seems like it was put out just to be put out as a fan. You expect between the buried and me to sound like Jamie King produced it. Absolutely. Every time. And this doesn't really sound like that. I think the biggest issue I have with it again is that the songs are really long and they're so long that they're hard to pay attention to. And maybe that's just the ADD person in me. But like I started listening to this band because they used to slam and then they were like melodic sometimes. This record is so up its own ass as far as trying to sound progressive 
but they don't use like half of the toolkit that they had on the great misdirector on colors. And I get it. I, I think that's why this wasn't put out as a full release. Are they intentionally writing progressive music by the definition of progressive music? Most people consider progressive to be this random combination of ideas that flow together and create some type of drug-induced experience. Between the Bear to Me is definitely not that, but did we throw out all of the other pieces of the puzzle? The border's gone, like, we can't do a rock thing anymore because that's too easy. We gotta be more obscure with our ideas and our play styles. Well, I agree that they're playing progressive music, the genre, on this record. And you they're said not, it much simpler than yeah, I did. And they're not, <laughs> and they're not being progressive. There is a huge difference between being a progressive metal band and being a metal band that plays progressive music. Huge difference. It's very noticeable here. They're sure, it still has the clean vocals. It's almost a more stripped down sound, which is what I actually thought I wanted. But then I realized that like I also buy into the band's hype a little bit too much. But I think the only thing I can really say about it is that it's not bad. They've, they've never released anything that's been total shit. But this record is very stock between the Barrett and me. There's not a lot of new ideas brought to the table on the hypersleep dialogues. And that's fine because they didn't consider it to be an album or anything that you should really pay attention to. They, they saved all that shit for the Parallax 2 future sequence. I haven't checked out yet, but I'm a little bored with the Between the Buried and Me thing on Parallax 2. They're trying it again. They're trying to put out that album again. And what's that album? Colors. It's Colors. I think that the Parallax 2 succeeds in being more like Colors than the Great Misdirect did. It tells a story, albeit a weird one, or one that you really can't really follow. If you go on YouTube, there's a guy that puts the Between the Baird and Me story together and plays all the songs in some weird sequential order. It's fun. It's a rabbit hole. It's a conspiracy theory. But it's a ton of fun to jump into and look at. And uh, if I can find that video, I'll put it in the show notes. Because I think, I think that guy understands the band better than we do. But as a listener, as a fan... I know whenever I started off with goodbye to everything, I was just like, fuck, here we go again. Here we go again is an understatement. This album may be their longest. It has the shorter songs that I was asking for from Alaska, but it also has the 10 minute plus songs that don't succeed the same way that White Walls or Ants of the Sky did. They're a little bit less swim to the moon, but this is where it becomes blatantly obvious to me that the musicians in this band are great players. They are great at doing what they do, but I'm starting to notice the primary techniques of Between the Buried and Me songwriting. Paul Wagner had a few years there where a lot of people thought he was the best guitarist of all time because he played the solo on Selkies. Dan Briggs, phenomenal bass player. He's an actual bass player who can fucking play the fucking bass, who writes his shit and could probably do the same thing that Blake Richardson does, just show up to the party, play it by himself, and it would all line up when he's done. If you're going to do something well, you do that thing, and you become a master at that thing. I think Between the Buried and Me is a master at writing and recording Between the Buried and Me songs, but that toolkit that was composed of so many different things that was hard for me to follow for so many years, 
I'm not surprised by what I'm hearing from Between the Buried and Me in 2012. It sounds like a Between the Buried and Me album to a detriment because nothing on here is new. I have to give it some credit. I like it more than The Great Misdirect, but I liked <laughs> The Great Misdirect. It's just that the Parallax 2 sounds like they realized that they didn't nail the color sound on Great Misdirect, and so they're trying to do it again. And in this case, I think they largely succeed. It's just the idea of colors already exists, so I don't really need another one. Like, that record's always going to exist. I can just go listen to it whenever I want, and I do. This record is for the fan that's like, oh my god, I'm fucking thirsty and I can't get enough. That's who this album is for. It's for the fan that's like, oh my god, I, I love Colors, I love Great Mr. Act, I, I really want something else, I want more. And unfortunately, I'm not that fan, because I feel largely the same way about Alaska. I, I want more of Alaska. I want the band to diversify enough to where they can put out an album with 12 songs on it. And that is that is actually a good thing about future sequences it has all of that it's a little bit more stripped down there aren't 17 minute fucking songs we kind of settled in on that 10 minute mark at this point well in a, in a case like this i'm happy to see that they kind of took those songs and put them in their own release which would be the hypersleep dialogues so it's almost like they trimmed they trimmed the fat of this massive project but i do feel like the parallax concept is a very long it's like their version of something wicked this way comes it's a huge expansive okay. overindulgent concept but i feel like they did it right whereas iced earth did not do it right because we're pretty much done with the parallax after this you know i, I mean i'm sure i'm sure that guy on youtube could show me 17 different examples of times that the parallax has been mentioned before and after this album but as far as the casual listener goes, this is it for the Parallax. Uh, I thought this was cool. I actually enjoy the live version of this album more than the actual album. Uh, and I actually feel similar to Colors. I liked their live performance of that. that I was I, just about to ask you. That I saw in person, no less. Joe and I both saw that DVD. So when you hear people clapping and screaming you know, in the background, you just have to like really listen to get me and Joe's voices out of there. You can find me a few times. I was in the front row for that entire show. Not by choice. Bonus tidbit, I'm also on the Chariot DVD. You can actually see me in the crowd with my arms up. If anybody's, you know, if that sweetens the deal for anybody, I'm on that DVD. 2015, Coma Ecleptic. Did I say that right? Yes, you did. No, no, it's Coma Ecliptic, not Coma Ecleptic. I can't read, apparently. I have spent the least amount of time with this album. I made a conscious choice in 2012 after listening to Parallax 2 because I was very disappointed with Hypersleep Dialogue. I was going to take some time away from Between the Buried and Me and wait for them to put out the next album that I would care about. I had kind of made this choice that Dan talked about Alaska when it came out and The Silent Circus, but everybody was talking about Colors when it came out. I felt like if I went into Coma Ecliptic with this preconceived notion that they were going to fix whatever was broken on The Great Misdirect they were going to do it in a way that I would hear about it, basically. I think this is a better album than Parallax because this was what I was asking for on The Great Misdirect. Here's 11 songs. We don't touch the 10-minute mark at all, and they all kind of flow together and they all work. I just have listened to this album the least, and maybe that's shame on me. It's a strip down between the Barry and me, and it's absolutely what we needed. 
Is this what I was asking for in Great Misdirect? Maybe. Just give me that band, but don't try to do colors again. Let it happen. It happened once. This is kind of a return to form for the band, in my opinion. I think this record largely succeeds because it's weird, but it's the BT band that we got to know on colors. So they still do all the shit that they did on the other records, like the most recent ones. But the biggest difference for me is that they don't have a massive concept weighing them down. They're able to just freely write a collection of songs that sound good, but stand apart from one another. This is not trying to be a beginning to end sort of deal. And it's kind of refreshing to be able to skip around on a Between the Buried Me album without feeling like you're losing out on something because you didn't listen to all 18 minutes of the other songs. It also allows you to listen to the whole thing if you want to. One of the best things about Colors is once you get it, you can just pull up prequel to the sequel and listen to it. You can pull up Ants to the Sky and just listen to it. You get it. You can't really do that with Parallax. You are expected to just take in the swim to the moon, as it were. Coma Ecliptic allows you to listen to it and then listen to the parts that you want. Well, if, if that I, makes sense. If I may make a video game comparison, I would compare Between the Buried and Me's work with the Elder Scrolls series. If Colors is Elder Scrolls IV Oblivion, which I played for 400 plus hours, then you get to the Great Misdirect and that's like Skyrim. And it's great. And some people might even say that it's better, but oh fuck, it's like another, do I need to spend another 400 hours? Like it gets so complicated that like I enjoyed my 400 hours with Oblivion. I really did. I enjoyed my 100 plus hours with Skyrim. But then if Elder Scrolls drops you know, another game, they're like, oh, but you forgot to play Fallout 3. So that's another 100 hours. And then you, you're like, well, I need to, now you need to play Fallout New Vegas. That's another 100 hours. Now you need to play Fallout 4. That's another 100 hours. It turns into this situation where I'm starting to lose my taste for giant open world RPGs. And these albums are the same way in that I probably would have loved the Parallax if it had come out right after Alaska. I would have loved The Great Misdirect had it come out right after Alaska. However, I'm really only enjoying Coma Ecliptic because it's a more straightforward experience. It's like a regular 30 to 40 hour video game that I can kind of play and then I can put down. But it still has a lot of the fun elements that those bigger, longer games had. That's the end of my video game podcast. It's the only way I can really <laughs> think about it though because like as I got older, I don't have time to sit there and listen to a 72-minute fucking album and then also try to figure out how it all connects together. And in the spirit of this podcast, it's a good thing that I've just followed this band over the years because I don't know if I could have done this in a, in a week or, or a preparation cycle or whatever. Like, I don't know if I would have been able to grasp all of it and I, come, I probably would have come away far more negative. I definitely agree with that. I don't think if you've never listened to Between the Bear to Me before, this would be a good discography to just take it all in. Not at all. You don't have the time. You don't have the time to break it all down. So an album like Coma Ecliptic is good because it doesn't come in with all those reservations in mind. You're not coming in being like, okay, what's the concept? And if there is a concept, it's only on that album. It's not spread across two releases. So it works. It works 100%. So I guess my question is, is now that we've kind of returned to form, where do we go from here? 2018, Automata. Part one. Now, I've told everybody on this podcast before my apprehension. Anytime I see, anytime I see the words part one on something, 
because my immediate response is, oh, fuck. Here we go. But it really wasn't like that because here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I'm expecting from this band. Automata Part 1 is going to be some 75-minute album. And then Automata 2 is going to be another 75-minute album. They didn't do that. They still gave us a long album, but they just split it in half. Which is kind of bullshit. I've criticized other bands heavily for doing the same thing. I don't know if it's bad or good in this case. I think if the Parallax Hypersleep Dialogues is an EP, this is either one album cut into two pieces unnecessarily, or it's two EPs that are meant to be consumed as one album. I tolerate this more because this is between the buried and me making creative choices that don't feel forced. I think Automata is the band today. And the way it's split in half is a creative decision. I think Automata 1 and 2 are like the two books that preceded The Goblet of Fire. They were just the right length for that type of story, and then you get this long, drawn-out, extended book that basically existed to sneak in a lot of history and backstory and character pieces so that you actually have an idea of what's coming when you get to the Deathly Hollows. This is like the prequel to the Parallax. Not the prequel to the sequel. Hey, man, I liked the Clone Wars. I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, moving on. I think the decision to split Automata into two albums was really clever for a couple of different reasons. My personal reason is that I just got done complaining for a half an hour about how these albums are too long and there's too much to break in. Or I'm sorry, there's too much to unpack in each of these albums. The Parallax is rough. The Great Misdirect is rough. Colors is even rough if you're just getting into it for the first time. Coma Ecliptic wasn't like that. It was more just like a regular album, which I appreciated. My personal reason is that they've broke it down and made it more digestible for me. Now I only have to unpack half of it, and then I can unpack the other half later. Which, don't get me wrong, there's nothing stopping me from doing that with any other album, but they went ahead and did it for me, so I appreciate it. It's clearly a half and then a second, first half and a second half, and it's not two albums. The other reason I think that this is clever is if you look at the current state of music now, bands are almost more encouraged to put out singles than they are full albums but this is between the buried and me so they're not really capable of putting out singles so to them how do we put out an album basically like how do we cut costs here and this is definitely a cost cutting measure in that you paid for one album like the recording and the promotion and the campaign and all that stuff but you got two potential sales out of it which is really smart I will add to that, as much as I like to criticize bands that split one album into two, this is 2018. What was really starting to come back in 2018? Vinyl. Side A, side B? Yeah. And here's the cool thing. You can probably, and I don't know if they did this or not, so I could just be speculating here, but you could put out the Automata vinyl, then you could put out the Automata 2 vinyl, and then six months later, you can put out the fucking double gatefold, holy fucking shit edition vinyl. There it is again. <laughs> it's smart because this band, they're a progressive metal band. Progressive metal fans are diehard. They will buy all of it. And if there's any differences between the releases, they're going to find them. It may also just be a business decision. We tried to do the Parallax 2. We tried to take colors and make it longer. It didn't work, guys. Let's bring it back to that sweet spot. 
30 minutes, one hour if you consider the whole thing to be one album, which I do. And that would follow where Coma Ecliptic was in 2015. You were back at that hour-long album, but it was actually broken up into consumable pieces. Consumable pieces in 2018 are going to be one side of the vinyl before Dan goes to bed. So for that reason, I think it works. And now let's talk about the actual music on this album. From this point, we're only going to refer to Automata as one album because that's what it fucking is. This is in a lot of ways more experimental than anything they've ever done. Songs go all over the fucking place. It's got that creative spark that we heard on Colors, and I love it. It's weird and fun and heavy. You know, it's so funny, too, because I always thought this band was going to drop the heaviness at some point. Because almost for every other band out there, like, that's the next step. I was like, when are we going to get a Between the Buried and Me album that's all clean vocals and the drumming scaled down? We don't really get that. Really. Instead, they just added jazz to the second half. Right. <laughs> which, as I, which, as I have said multiple times, adding jazz into your music doesn't make you cool or creative. But with Between the Buried and Me, it's just another piece of the toolkit. Right. And they're starting to display parts of the toolkit they haven't displayed in a while. I think I knew something was wrong whenever my wife started really liking whenever I would put Between the Buried and Me on. It's like, oh, I love this. It kind of reminds me of the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Then I put on Automato, and she's like, what the, what is going on in this record? Excuse me, sir. Tell your wife to get out of my house. <laughs> yeah, she's like, she's like, what is going, what is going on with this record? She's like, what happened to the really big, long, epic songs? And I was like, well, they're there still, but they're not really epics as much as they're like a cult. Like it's like a compilation of weird, different sonic scapes that they've created. And in that sense, it's kind of up their own ass, but I appreciate it. I like that it, I like now that, you know, in 2018 and 2019, when I listen to Between the Buried and Me, I'm starting to get a lot of weird, cool, different stuff instead of getting just fucking rehash of an album that was great 12 years ago. But does that make sense that like they, they kind of tried to chase the colors dollar as far as they could? And then at some point they're like, well, creatively, that's just not that's not what the fans are wanting. They're, they're starting to get tired of it. They're starting to get bored. So that's whenever they're like, all right, well, let's just take a really weird album, cut it in half, give it to them in pieces, and they're going to come out feeling a lot better about it, which I think largely they succeeded with. I think this might be the time for final thoughts because as a whole, I feel Between the Buried and Me is a band that showcases their best musical abilities, composition, creativity and execution they do what they do very well and what they do is heavily imitated by other artists that are not as good at it as they are most people when they think of progressive metal the first band they say is dream theater there was a time and a place where dream theater were composers they wrote and orchestrated their music and then executed it and then at some point we got forsaken I think Between the Buried and Me composes heavy music using more tools than any other artist with the same fans. Opeth likes to break into the classical guitar every now and then, and that's progressive because it's not death metal. So it is death metal. Between the Buried and Me is a good band that can play whatever the fuck they want. It just happens to be that they play progressive death metal. I would say if you're a fan of heavy shit, but sometimes it doesn't feel very profound. It's just heavy. You know, like if your favorite band's Deicide, like eventually you're gonna hit a wall with a band like that because <laughs> it's been how many years and they still kind of just do the same thing. And I'm not criticizing what they do. What they do, they do very well. They 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 perfected that craft. 
However, with a band like Between the Buried and Me, you're going to get that heaviness that you like, that you expect, but you're also going to widen your palate, which is kind of the theme of this episode. Between the Buried and Me is a palate-expanding band. If your experience is with death metal or, or with metalcore, they're a band that's going to introduce you to a lot of different styles of music that you didn't even know that you liked, and it's entirely possible that you don't like those styles of music, but... That is what makes Between the Buried and Me a great band is that they can make you like stuff that you don't like because it's them doing it. So I'd, I'd say that you really can't go wrong with Between the Buried and Me. It just depends on what your attention span is. Me personally, I could do without a couple of the albums, but overall, I think that they're a great band and one of the foundational reasons why I listen to this kind of music. And what's your album of the week? My album of the week, well, I've been listening to a lot of Between the Buried and Me, but there's another band that kind of reminds me of Between the Buried and Me, and they're called The Contortionist. So I have been listening to Exoplanet by The Contortionist. Not Exoplanet Redux, the original. A couple weeks ago when we started prepping for this show, Rammstein released their new album, Rammstein. Not to be confused with their song, Rammstein. And I have been listening to that ever since. I am fascinated that a band that was big in the 90s for being dance metal can put out a new album in 2019 and we all still care about it. In case you've ever been wondering, why haven't you guys covered this band that I like? I want you guys to talk about this band, not this other band. Send us suggestions. There's a lot of different ways you can do that. You can send us a message on our email, which is gmail.com with band suggestions. We've got a list that is growing every day. We're getting requests almost in the hundreds. And that's a good thing because if you like this podcast, it's going to be around a while because we have to get to everybody. And getting to everybody is going to take a long, long time. So hopefully, you know, if podcasts stop becoming cool in 10 years, we're still going in some capacity because we just have to get to all those requests. We love them. We don't get bogged down. You're not bothering us. There's a million different ways you can get a hold of us, but I'm only going to give you about four. As I said before, you can email us at danandjoeshow at gmail.com. You can join us on our Discord server, which is a live chat platform. There will be a link in the description of this episode. Click on that link and you'll get added to our Discord server. You can chat with us in real time there. I'll get a notification on my phone every time you post and we'll probably respond to it unless it's like something like Pantera Rules 666. You can also join our Facebook official discography discussion group. If you go to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash discography discussion, you'll see our group there. Send a request to join the group and I will probably approve you. You can also reach out to us on Twitter. Uh, at Discuss Metal. You can reach out to me at Discuss Metal Dan or reach out to Joe at Discuss Metal Joe. You can also find every episode of the podcast on DiscussMetal.com or your favorite podcasting app. And on that note, this has been episode 119 of Discography Discussion. Thank you for listening. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Discuss Metal. Subscribe to our podcast everywhere you listen to podcasts, including Google Play, iTunes, and Stitcher. Visit DiscussMetal.com for all things discography discussion. And please send questions and comments to Show at gmail.com. If you are not a patron, you can become one at Patreon.com forward slash DiscussMetal. We have some sweet perks. 